Good afternoon and welcome to On the Arts, KLW's weekly radio magazine of the performing arts. I'm your host, David LaTulipe. Today you'll hear about the Berkeley Rep production of W. Kamau Bell Gets His Act Together from none other than W. Kamau Bell himself. The always artistic and amusing Les Ballets Trocadero de Monte Carlo are on tour and in town. I'll talk with artistic director Tori Dobrin. Plus, Lee Gomez from the vocal group Roomful of Teeth talks about that group's appearances as part of the Pivot Festival at SF Performances, curated by Gabriel Kahane. All coming up after an update of news from the BBC Live from London. Stay with us. BBC News. Hello, I'm Eileen McHugh. Houthi rebels in Yemen have carried out another attack on a US-owned cargo ship in the Red Sea region. No one was hurt. The incident took place as the United States announced that it was returning the Houthis to a list of global terrorist organisations. Our State Department's correspondent Tom Bateman reports from Washington. The US says the Houthis' attacks on shipping amount to a textbook definition of terrorism. Redesignating the group, combined with the joint military strikes carried out with the UK last week, is meant to exert pressure. In practice, it's unlikely to have much further effect on the Houthis, who already face multiple sanctions. The Houthis said the US move would only increase their determination to support the Palestinians. Police in Ecuador say a prosecutor who was investigating an attack by gunmen on a television studio during a live broadcast has been murdered. Cesar Suarez was shot numerous times as he drove his car on a motorway in the city of Guayaquil. Members of Parliament in Britain have approved new legislation which the government hopes will allow some asylum seekers to be transferred to Rwanda. Last year, the highest court in Britain ruled that the plan was unlawful. 11 MPs from the governing Conservative Party voted against it. Peter Sol reports. In the end, it was a comfortable victory for the government, but not before dozens of Tories had once again voted for changes to strengthen the legislation. 61 backed an amendment proposed by the former Immigration Minister Robert Jemrick, designed to block last-minute injunctions from the European Court of Human Rights, the largest rebellion of Rishi Sunak's premiership. But when it came to the third reading, as it's known, the vast majority fell back in line. Right-wing Conservatives said they considered the vote a matter of confidence in the government and decided against dealing a major blow to the Prime Minister's authority. The bill will now go to the House of Lords, where it's likely to meet more substantial opposition. MPs in Poland have voted to revoke a far-right politician's parliamentary immunity from prosecution after he used a fire extinguisher to put out candles lit in celebration of the Jewish festival Hanukkah last month. Grzegorz Brown's actions sparked a global outcry. From Warsaw, Adam Easton reports. Mr Brown's actions last month sparked a global outcry. Parliamentary Speaker Shimon Hovnia said there was no place for anti-Semitism in the chamber and handed out the maximum possible fine. Now Mr Brown has lost his immunity from prosecution. After the menorah was lit by Jewish leaders, the MP was filmed extinguishing the Hanukkah candles and filling the parliament with white smoke. He later called the Hanukkah festival satanic. Prosecutors want to charge him for the act and several separate incidents that preceded it. BBC News. 
The writer E. Jean Carroll has been testifying in a New York court in her second civil defamation trial against Donald Trump. Ms. Carroll is seeking $10 million in damages for remarks he made in 2019 that he never met her and that she was just trying to sell a memoir. A court in Suriname has issued an arrest warrant for the former president, Desi Bauterse, who has been sentenced to 20 years in prison for the murder of political opponents four decades ago. Mr Bauterse, who's 78, was due to hand himself over to the authorities last Friday after losing a final appeal against his sentence. Federal agents in Brazil have launched a renewed operation to expel illegal gold miners from a huge indigenous area in the Amazon rainforest. Mercury used in gold extraction has led to pollution and the deaths of over 300 people in the Yanomami reservation. Here's Leonardo Rocha. Police found plenty of evidence that illegal miners and loggers expelled in a similar operation a year ago have been back in the Anomami lands. They seized heavy equipment, weapons, ammunition and radios that were being used until recently. No arrests have been made. This operation comes a year after the Brazilian president, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, took office and accused his predecessor, Jair Bolsonaro, of carrying out a genocide against the Yanomami. President Lula declared a health emergency in the area and promised to reverse the situation. But experts say little has changed in the past year. A former Sierra Leonean president has been granted permission to travel abroad on medical grounds despite facing treason charges. The High Court ruling comes amid speculation that Ernest Bai Kuruma has agreed to go into exile in Nigeria if charges against him were dropped. He was accused of treason in connection with a failed coup in November. BBC News. This is Sunni Khalid, news editor here at KALW. In case you missed it, the union representing Cal State faculty is poised to strike on Monday to press their demands for higher pay. And the State Department of Public Health has issued new relaxed guidelines for COVID-19. You can hear these stories as well as others from our partners at NPR by logging onto our website at KALW.org. Meanwhile, keep your dial set on 91.7 or KALW, San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome to On the Arts, our weekly radio magazine of the performing arts. I'm David Latulipe. Well, we'll start today with someone who is no stranger to these airwaves. My first guest, W. Kamal Bell, is a stand-up comedian, director, producer, and proud dad. For seven seasons, he was the host and executive producer of the five-time Emmy-winning uh, CNN docuseries, The United Shades of America, and won a Peabody for his Showtime docuseries, We Need to Talk About Cosby. He's also the co-author of the New York Times best-selling book, Do the Work, an anti-racist activity book. His first book was a memoir, memoir with the easy-to-remember title. Ready? Got to tape it, take a deep breath for this one. The Awkward Thoughts of W. Kamal Bell, Tales of a Six-Foot-Four-Inch African-American Heterosexual Cisgender Left-Leaning Asthmatic Black and Proud Blurred Mama's Boy Dad and Growing Up Mixed Stand-Up Comedian. Um, Sorry, maybe I might have messed that up, Kamal. Recently, he directed and produced the HBO documentary 1000% Me, Private School Negro, is uh, available on Netflix. That's his second comedy special. Um, And he's on the board of directors of Donors Choose, a nonprofit that helps teachers raise money for class projects, and Live Free, a nonprofit dedicated to ending gun violence, mass incarceration, and mass criminalization. For the next several Saturday evenings, he'll be appearing under the auspices of SF Performances with a solo show, W. Kamal Bell Gets His Act Together. Kamal, welcome back to our KLW Airwaves. 
Unfortunately, we're out of time. Yeah, exactly. The intro is so long, <laughs> but thanks for having me. Indeed. Uh, well, as we all know here, uh, KLW holds a special place for you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, I had, I had another show that could have made that bio called Come Out Right Now that I did for a couple years on KLW. That was a, when I, me and my wife and my oldest daughter moved back to the Bay Area and I was trying to figure out what happened next. That was a great way to sort of reconnect with the Bay Area. Well, you've always been great about coming back to KLW and helping out with things like our membership campaigns and continue to collaborate with some of the folks at the station or that have come through the Audio Academy. So thanks for keeping that connection up. Yeah, I mean, I'm no Roman Mars, but I do what I can. <laughs> um, uh, you're all, your comedy has always been socio-political and community-based. Now, did you have to find a way to tell those stories of injustice or inequality with a degree of humor without sledgehammering people? Or is it more just pointing out the problems and hypocrisies that we face today? No, I mean, I think people always sort of assume that maybe I was some sort of like uh, political science PhD who's like, how do I communicate to the people? I will use humor. And (laughs) that is not what happened. I I started out being a kid who liked Saturday Night Live and so and was an only child, so I thought I was hilarious. And, you know, and then over time, I wanted to be a comedian, but because I was raised right by a mom who cared about the world and a dad who cared about the world, I just sort of found out that I was drawn to talking about things about the world. And And I think when I was younger, I couldn't figure out how to make it make sense. And then the older I got, the more kids I had, the more I was like, oh, now I really understand why we should care about the world. Hmm. Yeah, the one we're leaving them is going to be a tough one. Um, well, just reading the brief version of your bio, even though it took, you know, part of the show, <laughs> it sounds like you do have your act together. So tell us about choosing the title for Berkeley Rep, W. Kamau Bell Gets His Act Together, and the focus of the show. Well, my, like, as you mentioned, my last comedy special was, on, uh, was in 2018 on Netflix, Private School Negro, and my third daughter was born around the same time it came out. And so I was like, okay, I'll take a break while we have this third kid gets her act together, and then... I will come back to stand up in 2020 because it'll be an election year. And that was my plan. And then the world had different plans. And so I didn't do stand up in 2020 for obvious reasons. And then there was a period of time where I just didn't like the idea of going to like basements with low ceilings and having people breathe in my face. And then I thought maybe I'm retired from stand up comedy, even though it's the thing that I really identify most with, with everything on my bio. And then it came to a point recently where Really, my wife, Melissa, was like, you need to go back. You're walking around the house talking to yourself. You need to go back to the <laughs> stage. And, and I was lucky enough that in trying to figure out a venue that would let me sort of like start fresh and start brand new, because not every place wants to do that. They want to know what they're getting when they charge people. The Berkeley rep had always been clear that they would be interested in doing something with me. And so I reached out to them, and very quickly this came together. Well, getting back to stand-up, when I think of stand-up, I think, as you mentioned, those low-ceiling basement rooms and people who probably have more than one libation. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had to deal with um, uh, hecklers? And how do, how, do you, how do you deal with them? <laughs> if you've never dealt with the hecklers of stand-up comic, comic, you have probably only done stand-up comedy once. <laughs> like, especially the way, you, the, the way that you start doing stand-up comedy is in places where people probably don't want you there. Coffee shops and bars where people just showed up to drink during happy hour and now you're yelling at them through a microphone. And so, yeah, I've dealt with more than my fair share. And actually, the reason why I did it this way is because I really, there's a long time period of my life where I thought stand-up comedy had to be that. And then at some point I was like, well, if I want to do what I want to do, I think I need to get away from the drunks and the hecklers and the second shows on Friday nights. So, you know, there's a famous quote among stand-up comedians when they, when they asked Steve Martin, why did you quit doing stand-up comedy? And he said, second show Friday night. 
And so for me, this was a way to sort of like, let me go find people. This is how the bell curve, my solo show, the WPL bell curve started. Let me go to a theater and just sort of see who comes through the door. Those people will want to be patient and hear me and not be so interested in the nachos. How spontaneous are these shows or is it very carefully scripted or just outlined? Do you riff on anything once you, <laughs> once you, once you get going? Now you sound like my therapist this morning. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, I, so I did stand up in the fall as part of a, a benefit for Stageworks Theater when, before, before they sold to somebody else. And, and how so, did that make you feel? <laughs> now you don't sound like my therapist. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, I, so in that point, I, I like just like a couple days before, I was like, all right, let me write down some stuff and get it together. And there's thoughts that are sort of always going through my head that I'm sort of holding on to. I'm like, that could be good. And so with this, it's like, to be quite honest with you, I have, I have some time on my calendar on Friday cut out on my schedule to be like, time to come up with a new hour of material. <laughs> that uh-huh. would be the time when I sit down and sort of force it out of my head onto some paper. So and my friend Martha Reinberg, who's helped me develop it, who did the Belker for years, will be there to tell me more of that, less of that. So there's no reason for anyone just to see these uh, Saturday shows once because you're going to have some fresh material every week. I, that's the plan. I mean, when I, that's how I did it with the bell curve. That's when I really got that really figured out what the bell curve was back at the Shelton theater days in San Francisco and the climate theater days was like, I sort of told myself every week you have to have a new chunk of material. And with so much going on in the world and it's been five years, there's a lot of personal stories I want to tell. So I will be every week. There may be a new personal story. There's also just so much going on in the news that I'm paying attention to. And then, you know, there'll be a sense of honing things, but you know, I think this is really like, it's a real gift to be at a point in my career where I could pull this off, and it's a really tiny space. It's only sixty people, so it's really an intimate setting to do something, and I'm really happy that it's that it's that's going to happen. So, for, for carrying a show like that, I'm I'm curious. I'm, I'm sure everyone's technique is different. Do you have a have a cue card or just some words to make sure you move to the next subject, or is it all just you know? You uh, yeah, everybody is very different, and also it evolves over time. I used to like have like the you know spiral bound notebooks, and I would carry around one with me everywhere I went, and then at some point it moved into like just notes in your phone and. Now it's sort of like because I have three kids and way too many jobs, it just sort of all sits in my head. And then at some point, my kids sort of know me for like Sharpies and printer paper. So I will go get a black Sharpie and a stack of printer paper and just sort of write down a set list over and over again until I feel like that's it. That seems like the right order. And then hopefully it's about three pieces of printer paper, could be more. And then that's my new, I'm a, since I'm a big wig in showbiz now, I asked for a music stand from the Berkeley rep and they're very nicely. They're going to let me have a music stand on stage with me. Well, good for you. All right. <laughs> now you mentioned your kids. I always love to hear references to your three kids. How old are they now? Uh, 12, nine and five. They're still young. I seems like they should be older. <laughs> but they're mm-hmm. still young. Yeah. And uh, early on when these, when these kids started popping out, you know, you mentioned how, how it really transformed you and, and made you think of things in a different way. That's yeah. Great. And I mean that, yeah, that's continued. Cause I think that's called being an engaged parent. <laughs> if, it hadn't, if it hadn't really like transformed me, that's called being absentee. So you know, the thing is, now that my kids are old enough, they really, the two oldest ones especially, really understand what it is I do for a living. They were both, all my kids were featured in the documentary, A Thousand Percent Me, Growing Up Mixed. We got to get, my two oldest daughters and me got to go to the Emmys, where we won an Emmy for that doc, and they got to go on stage and present Emmy Awards. And so it's really fun to, like, have them sort of slowly work their way into the family business. Like, we did, we were really careful, me and my wife Melissa, to not, like, put them out there right away. But now they're sort of at an age where they're ready for it in different ways. And, and it's also curious to me that my youngest daughter... Because I have been a stand-up comedian, if you ask her what I do, she'll say, you make funny documentaries. I'm like, okay, sure. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so it's really it's interesting to see this sort of how my career evolves and how they see it. And 
out in the world. And, you know, my kids, I think the thing my kids hate most about my job is that we will be out in the streets and people will see us all together and be like, oh, my God, I'm so excited to see Kamau Bell. And they'll turn to my daughters and be like, isn't your dad so cool? <laughs> Which is uh, not, not what any kid. No, no, I think I think uh, Conan O'Brien mentioned that you know his kids don't don't even laugh at his stuff. They're just like, oh, dad, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my goal isn't laughter from them. My goal is to embarrass them. That's when I feel like I really got a good one. If they're like, oh. <laughs> now is it is it Matt that you've been working on with with some of the music productions? Oh yeah, yeah, Matt. With uh, we. Uh, well, I feel like working on. I just got to go to. The, we did the Oakland Symphony playlist, and so we did. I did the first one years ago with uh, Michael Morgan, uh, rest in peace. And Matt was one of the composers and keyboard players. And then we just did one with Angela Davis, which I got to host. I mean, that's the easiest job I've ever had in show business. Hmm. I just show up and get to like enjoy music and talk about it. Uh, Matt's doing the hard work. Yeah, he, I guess he did some of the arrangements for uh, for the orchestra for that. Yeah, no, that's the, yeah, they are like rehearsing for weeks and I come in on like an hour before the show and be like, is everything ready for me? <laughs> so, like, it's a, but it's a great way to get these playlist shows. We're going to do some more, hopefully. And they, I'm sort of like currently the, the host of the show. It like, it's a great way to get different people into the Oakland Symphony and also to bring like, you know, Angela Davis playlist was like classical music and also Pete Seeger songs and, there's just a, you know, an Aretha Franklin song, and it's also local people from the community and people from who fly in to just sing for Angela Davis. It was just an incredible evening of like, it's kind of how it always should be a really diverse crowd whose ears are open for everything. And it's great that you inaugurated that with Michael Morgan. Was he key in, in refining your playlist, so to speak? Yeah, Michael Morgan. So I was the first person they experimented with because I think they knew they needed somebody who would roll with anything. So, and I gave him a list of songs. And he was like, he sort of was like, said this, maybe more this. And he's like, I don't think we can pull off Rage Against the Machine, which I appreciated his honesty. But uh, yeah, we got, it was an incredible, an incredible evening. Uh, let's just touch briefly on, on your series on, was it Netflix? Uh, we've got to talk about Cosby. Did you get some pushback? For, first of all, <laughs> you can tell the audience what, what that was sure. all about. Did you get some pushback from what we call the comedy community? Uh, the comedy community? I mean... Not from anybody. Here's the thing about Cosby. First of all, it was on a, it was on the network, the Dearly Departed Showtime network, ah. which does not exist anymore. But uh, you can still get it on, uh, I think, Paramount Plus. Uh, so is that? Yeah, I think Cosby sued them. That's why yeah. they're not around. <laughs> yeah, but uh, didn't sue me though. But uh, you know, it's the the things that I talk about in the doc. A lot of people knew about. They just weren't going to talk about it out loud, and so nobody really pushed back. Now, certainly, I walk into rooms now. If they're even not even just comedy rooms, but showbiz rooms, and I sort of look around and go, "Who's with me? Anybody?" <laughs> like, and so there are definitely some people who have looked me in the eye and, and walked the other way, but overwhelmingly, the so there's been support for. It. But yeah, most of the pushback I got was from people online who never met Bill Cosby, who Bill Cosby would probably not want to associate himself with, who just feel the need to cape for him and protect him. It was a four part docu series called "We Need to Talk About Cosby" that was basically. Talking about sort of personalized on me a little bit, like I'm a kid who grew up in Bill Cosby's world and was inspired to do comedy because of Bill Cosby and inspired to do good in the world because of Bill Cosby. And uh, then understood what we many of us understand that he had had years of sexual assault and abuse in his wake. And so the, the documentary is about wrestling with those ideas. And we actually talked to several survivors and then people, some people who worked with Bill Cosby and some other cultural critics and really talk about his whole life and career. It's like we talk about the the good deeds and the evil deeds just because I think that's the way you have to look at things. And and I think the best feedback I've gotten from it 
in addition to the Peabody Award, but is that one of the, some of the survivors have told me that they've gotten less online hate since the doc came out. Like it's sort of like helped sort of tell their story in a more definitive way that they feel like has made it easier for them to move around the world, which is like mission accomplished. So I'll take whatever pushback people have for me if that's the other result. I know what you mean about growing up with with Cosby. We wore out those LPs, wonderfulness, and you know, Bill Cosby is a very funny fellow, right? Uh, boy, they were just really innovative. It's 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 tragic, and I hope that uh, the healing is is taking place. W. Kamal Bell's show uh, gets his act. W. Kamal Bell gets his act together. Opening Saturday. Good luck with that opening, and runs on Saturdays at seven through March sixteenth at Berkeley Rep in the. Uh, on Addison Street in Berkeley, a limited engagement. Um, you also mentioned that you're <laughs> you're trying not to freak out about the upcoming election. I think as we all are. We, <laughs> I said, "Oh, happy 2024!" And I like my my. It's just going to be a tough year. It's going to be a yeah, tough yeah, year. Yeah. It's already started. Yes. <laughs> no, it's it's uh, we got to be. Away. I mean, you know, let's let's look at it this way. Apparently, Trump is doing better at this point than he was the last election cycle. At this point, oh, so like, <laughs> Port, Portugal is looking better and better for real estate investment, or, or maybe maybe. Greenland. When he yeah, buys yeah, Greenland, yeah. will have you know just be another state. Yeah, yeah, he's doing better than he did in 2016 when nobody thought he could win. So it's <laughs> like I think we have to understand that. Like, I think it's a good time to have a good sense of history and th- start thinking about things like you know the Roman Empire thought it was going to go forever too, right? Yeah. You know, Alexander thought he'd be great forever. You know, there's just these things that we think we think of ourselves as sort of existing at the time when we're supposed to exist and everything that is going that we're a superpower will always be that way that's not the case and we're gonna as i say we're we're living in the part of history that historians are like and that's where it all changed and it's up to us to figure out what that change was yeah well gets his act together w come well i found a perfect song to go out with you because you're still a young man tower of power (laughs) take care my friend thank you about Kamal Bell's performances at sfperformances.org. I'm sorry, this is berkeleyrep.org. SF Performances still to come with the Pivot Festival and I'll also be talking with the artistic director of the Ballet Trocadero de Monte Carlo. Stay with us here on KALW.
Hearts, music from the Estonian composer Arvo Pert, performed by the Ataka Quartet, one of the participants in San Francisco Performance's 2024 Pivot Festival, which runs from the 24th to the 26th at Herbst Theatre. This season, guest curator Gabriel Kahane, an exceptional composer and musician in his own right, brings together and performs with two of his favorite ensembles, the aforementioned and what you're hearing now, the Ataka Quartet, and Room Full of Teeth for three nights of music that expands the boundaries of chamber music. Kahane is composing music for and will perform on all three nights, on the 24th with the Ataka, on the 25th with Room Full of Teeth, and the festival culminates with all three on Saturday, on Friday the 26th with all three performing, again at the Herbst Theater. Gabriel Kahane is a musician and storyteller whose work increasingly exists at the intersection of art and social practice and has been hailed as one of the finest songwriters of the day by The New Yorker. He's been commissioned by many of the uh, leading arts institutions here in this country, including the Brooklyn Academy of Music, Carnegie Hall, and the Los Angeles Philharmonic, among others. And this season he embarks on a new collaborative commissioning project called In the Garden of the Gift, with the Ataka Quartet, Pekka Kusisto, and Roomful of Teeth as part of a two-year initiative with San Francisco performances, with additional performances scheduled around the U.S. and in Europe. The two-time Grammy Award-winning Ataka Quartet are recognized and acclaimed as one of the most versatile and outstanding ensembles of the moment, a true quartet for modern times that glides through traditional classical repertoire through to electronic, video game music, and contemporary collaborations. And I'm very pleased to be joined in studio by Esteli Gomez, a member of the Grammy Award-winning Room Full of Teeth, that band of Brothers and sisters dedicated to reimagining the expressive potential of the human voice by engaging collaboratively with artists, thinkers, and community leaders from around the world, seeking to uplift and amplify voices old and new while creating and performing meaningful and adventurous music. Roomful of Teeth was founded in 2009 by Brad Wells and the group in incubated at the Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art in North Adams, Massachusetts. My guest, uh, as well, they continue to innovate with the rapidly changing world, embracing um, deeper relationships with technology. And more to tell about that will be Esteli Gomez, who is quickly gaining recognition as a stylish interpreter of early and contemporary repertoires. In November of 2011, she received first prize in the Canticum Gaudium International Early Music Vocal Competition in Poznan, Poland and can be heard in a number of recordings in addition to her work with Roomful of Teeth. She's originally from Watsonville, California, and studied at Yale College and McGill University, and currently teaching voice at Lawrence University, while continuing her work as a performer. She's also a proud member of Beyond Artists, a coalition of artists who donate a percentage of their concert fees to organizations they care about. Esteli, welcome to On the Arts. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be joining you today. Sure. And again, thanks for, for jumping on. I Absolutely. Think, I think this ensemble has one of the most clever names in the music biz, Roomful of Teeth. It always <laughs> makes me smile when I say Roomful of Teeth because you know exactly what, what the uh, double entendre is there. And I'm hoping... I'm glad. <laughs> uh, 
I'm hoping you can give a shout out to whoever your graphic designer is who is transforming the various performance spaces and venues into some sort of tea theme. I was really wowed by the graphics at roomfullofteeth.org. Yes, absolutely. Well, and, and there, there's actually been some AI um, involvement in some of those graphic designs. So uh, so that's been fun to input some of our venues and some of the international locations to which we're touring um, and to see what it looks like um, to go to these different places and say, okay, we're going to be in Liepaja, um Latvia and what does what does AI do with the words roomful and teeth and Latvia um, <laughs> so <laughs> so it's pretty fun um, and also just the idea yes like you said you immediately it conjures up I, th- I hope a concept of chamber music for voices and the oldest instrument that we have which is the human voice true enough uh, how long have you been with the group I'm one of the original members. Oh, uh, yes. So we were founded in 2009. And um, and that's when I joined. I was very fortunate to, I finished my undergraduate degree and I had been auditioning for, for various master's programs and managed to, to find the flyer. And, and that was, that was that. How, uh, how often do you need to audition members? Is it a regular process or are things pretty stabilized over the years? Well, we do have an expanded company. We do have a larger family than just the eight members that you see on stage when you come to see Room Full of Teeth, um, because it is uh, it is is a group that is more than just the eight that you see. Um, we have been touring even more than when we first began, and it was very project oriented. Just the first commissioned material and really just the the idea of what would happen if we did more sounds than the sounds that you envision when you see something on a page and um and you're you're kind of instructed okay this is going to be uh, a standardized classical or bel canto sound what if we studied different types of singing and what if we started to envision notation systems and um, different ways of using our voices that uh, could then be represent better represented in, in a small chamber band. Um, so yeah, we have a larger cohort. Um, so you'll only see eight voices and eight microphones, but um, it is a rolling not rolling admissions. That makes me sound like a voice professor. Oh wait, I am now. Uh-huh. Um, but <laughs> but yes. Uh, so all of us have um, a number of jobs. We're, we're all gigging musicians of various sorts. Some of us teach voice. Some of us compose. Some of us play other instruments. Um, none of us is like only full time band member. Room full of teeth. One hundred percent. We're all um, sort of a multifaceted. Uh, gang of musicians. Lovely. And uh, 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 extensive touring is obviously part of this whole uh, proselytizing of this wonderful group. I have any, any favorite, favorite spots that you've landed at or, or that you're looking forward to or that you'll never forget? Mm, absolutely. Um, definitely doing, uh, doing a wild opera during some of the protests in France with Peter Sellers. 
um, and also touring that in New Zealand in Wellington um, was a highlight uh, a couple of years ago. Um, we have a residency coming up in Santa Fe that I'm really looking forward to, a chance to kind of be at altitude together and mm. singing at altitude is always kind of a trip. Because very challenged, <laughs> but it's kind of like training at altitude as an athlete. It's like, okay, let's think, let's rethink how we breathe. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. And of course we're um, nominated for two Grammys and we'll be at the Grammys in about a week and a half. Great. Well, let's hope keep our fingers crossed for that. Um, Thanks. From here, you're going up north to Healdsburg, down to SoCal mm-hmm. for a couple of concerts, then to Paris next month. That's going to be interesting, I would think. Oh, yes, absolutely. Right. Paris. Uh, Just that. Have you, uh, <laughs> has, has Roomful of Teeth performed there before? Yes, we have. Yes. Uh, so it'll be nice to be... Um, it's, it's actually short that we're not going to be touring for a longer period of time in Europe. But we, especially when the pandemic was raging, there were a few, I mean, it was honestly easier to be overseas than it was in North America, just in terms of regulations um, and, and testing and availability of tests. Um, So yeah, we were doing quite a number of tours in Europe. And um, so it'll be nice to be in Paris again. Well, particularly for an aspirating vocal ensemble, COVID shutdown must've been really tough for you guys. Like many yes. performing arts groups, though, innovation became key and, and new, new technologies were learned not only to keep together, but to inform your audiences. And those technologies often transformed into what you're doing now. Is that the case with Roomful of Teeth? Absolutely. Absolutely. In that way, our small cohort um, allowed for quite a bit of safety. I mean, we are not an enormous ensemble, um, so we can have really safe protocols or, you know, have safety protocols that keep one another um, very aware and, and keep, keep us informed and safe. Um, but yes, we definitely did online residencies. We did um, learn a lot about um, recording ourselves and um, different software. We all got digital audio workspaces and um, and uh, we're, did some testing, um, some beta testing for Antares. We did um, a number of you know different types of residencies in order to explore our voices in a way that kept one another safe. Um, so that was definitely a, an aspect of working through the pandemic. But my <laughs> my sort of tongue-in-cheek joke was like, I, I really am not built to like constantly be ironing a green screen. You know, it's like I really want to just be with people and sing. Yeah, it's, so. <laughs> it's tough, especially. It was it was challenging. <laughs> so I'm glad we're I'm glad we're through that part of it. Uh, yeah. That's Esteli Gomez. She's one of the founding members of Room Full of Teeth, appearing with the Ataka Quartet as part of San Francisco Performances Pivot Festival this year, uh, uh, curated by Gabriel Kahane, composer and performer as well. He'll be uh, performing with both groups, and then they'll be all together on the 26th. I, I've got some beautiful music from Caroline Shaw, Partita for Eight Voices, that Room Full of Teeth recorded. Could you tell us a little bit about that Pasacalia, which is number four? 
Absolutely. That was actually the first movement uh, that Caroline wrote in our very, very first residency in 2009. Um, it's inspired by artwork of Sol LeWitt, um, who is, has some beautiful um, artwork at Mass MoCA, the Massachusetts Museum for Contemporary Art. Um, and it just has these uh, wild swaths of color and texture sonically that are inspired by the same um, that you can see in Solowitz's artwork. The way that his art is structured is that there's really instruction for um, installing the art. Uh, so you will hear in the score, you'll, you'll hear in the piece things like the 66 point is located toward the midpoint from the 66 toward the mid, the middle strength or pike equal to the distance between the ninth and the 44th point. And those are actually um, okay. instructions, right? Those are instructions for making the art on the wall to then create a huge m- mural that then creates the art. So in a way that that's, uh, that's, that is very reminiscent of something musical, right? Where we have a visual score and then there's, there's an art form created from it. Um, yeah. Our art of a brainiac, perhaps in those formulas, you know, it's artistic in itself. Right. Yeah, yeah. right, right. So, but I mean, just, uh, I love Caroline's concepts of color, um, and sonic, um, just joy. Uh, you can hear, Tambral shift um, from for different different uh, timbres of our voices, all in single chords, um, and as the chords return in different parts of our in different um, aspects of our voices—head voice, chest voice, sort of falsetto—that um, you can hear the the tambral shift, um, just as you might hear different splatters of paint. Hmm. Music by Caroline Shaw, performed by Room Full of Teeth. Esteli Gomez, we wish you a great residency for a few days here in San Francisco and continued health and beautiful music making on the rest of the tour. Thank you so much. Visit roomfulofteeth.org for more information about what they're up to and sfperformances.org about the performances on January 24th, 25th, and 26th. Still to come, Le Ballet Trocadero de Monte Carlo. Stay with us.
86, 87, and 88 points are located symmetrically across the central vertical axis of the wall. From the 45th, the 28th, and the 65th points in that order. The 89th point is located halfway between the sound of Room Full of Teeth. They're performing along with the Ataka Quartet as part of San Francisco Performance's Pivot Festival, curated this year by Gabriel Cahane, who will also be performing performances next Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, sfperformances.org for more information. Well, uh, Le Ballet Trocadero de Monte Carlo has kicked off a year-long celebration of its 50th anniversary this year with a 36-city tour taking place through April 27th. Highlights will include three performances at the Kennedy Center, 
with live music by the Opera House Orchestra, as well as multiple performances in Florida, California, Texas, many other states with international dates to follow. Founded in 1974 by a group of ballet enthusiasts for the purpose of presenting a playful view of classical ballet in parody form, Les Ballets first performed in the late, late shows in off-off Broadway lofts. By mid-1975, the troupe had garnered praise from publications like The New Yorker, The New York Times, and The Village Voice. Fifty years later, the troupe has established itself as a major dance phenomenon throughout the world. Tori Dobrin has been the director of Les Ballets Trocadero de Monte Carlo since 1992. He joined the company as a dancer in 1980 and danced with them for some 16 years. Tori trained at the Stanley Holden Dance Center in L.A., the Houston Ballet, the Harkness Dance Center in New York, and has danced with the Dallas Ballet, Radio City Music Hall Ballet, the New Jersey Ballet, and American Dance Machine, among others. Tori, such a, a pleasure to welcome you to On the Arts. Thank you. Good to be here. Sure. Um, I'm so happy that my schedule and the troops uh, coincide for a change, so I'll finally be able to catch a performance at Zellerbach Hall of uh, Trocadero. And this is kind of home turf for you as well, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's uh, home turf for me personally because I grew up in California and most of my family lives in Marin County. Uh, but Berkeley also, Zellerbach has a special place in our history because it was the woman who actually was uh, founded the um, program over there. Her name was Betty Connors. And when we were just starting to get uh, ourselves together in the early 70s, I hadn't been in the company at that point, but <clears throat> she actually booked the Trocadero Inn to Zellerbach Hall in about 1976 or 7. And it was because she was such an important person in the presenting business. Uh, it allowed all the other um, uh, uh theaters and performing arts series all over the country to book us in. So we really think of her as our kind of fairy godmother, and we thank her very much for helping us get our start. <laughs> well, I gave a bit of background on the group, but could you elaborate on that for our audience uh, and, and just tell us the kind of reception you've received over the years? Sure. Uh, we were formed in 1974, and um, <clears throat> in 1974, of course, there was this huge dance boom all around the country, and possibly all around the world. So dance was very, very popular. And at the same time in New York City, uh, especially in the 60s, um, there was a, a real uh, movement that uh, in theater and, and dance and everything that really became um, part of the performance art movement, I guess you could call it now. And uh, the Trocadero really came out of that movement uh, where the guys who formed the company were, they were comedians, they were dance lovers, but they were really also kind of fringe uh, people who came out of this experimental uh, um, era in New York that also used drag a lot uh, in their uh, performances. People like Charles Ludlum and John Vaccaro were the early um, people who developed this. Uh, and so 50 years later, we're still going. Uh, we're really one of the only troops from that downtown uh, scene in New York that is still um, going strong. Uh, over the years, we've been um, blackballed a lot, especially ah. when I joined in the 80s. Uh, uh, we did manage to tour quite a bit, but... We got a lot of flack from the dance world as well as from 
some of our more conservative and religious people in the United States uh, who didn't really like what we did. Hmm. Uh, some of you might remember the Jesse Helms National Endowment of the Arts uh, scandal uh, in the late 1980s, and that really did affect us quite a bit. But we persevered, and um, we're still here. Surprising that the um, you know the dance world wouldn't just embrace a little chance to be a little lighthearted, and I imagine a lot of the dance community does, but it's always the the vocal minority that that uh, stir up the stir up the pot, I guess. Well, um, most of our uh, success that came to us uh, with the general audience, the uh, happened in Europe. Before that, um, I would say that, uh, how do you want to express this without uh, being too uh, exact? But, you know, there's a thing about uh, male dancers. Are they gay? Are they not gay? And, you know, is this something appropriate for men? And here were a bunch of uh, gay guys who were dancing around in tutus uh, making uh, parodies of ballets. Uh, That did not sit well with some of the um, people who were trying to push forward this idea that uh, dance was suitable for all types of guys. Um, so, um, that was our, a little bit of our, um, problem of, um, reaching, uh, the American audiences. We always did well with the audience, but the dance world, uh, really had trouble with us. Uh, I guess about 30 years into the company, we, we actually had maintained our presence and were so successful that, uh, there's nothing like success, which will turn, uh, an, an attitude towards you, hmm. uh, into more positive. Indeed. I mean, 50 years has a lot to, to state for it in itself. Uh, tell us about the title of the group. That's a little complicated. I think the guys who uh, formed the company and named it that would never had, would have named it that if they thought the company was going to be around in 15 year, 50 years. It really does play with the conventions of uh, the history of ballet. Uh, the guys who formed the country were real ballet nerds. And it really is a play on the old ballet ruse uh, companies that were started by that was started by Diaghilev in around 1909, where uh, Anna Pavlova and Nijinsky came out of those companies, and it, we really play with uh, um, the history of that, um, and that's really where the name came from. Uh, the company itself broke away from another drag ballet company in the early 70s, and that's where they added the uh, De Monte Carlo on and uh, things like that. Really. Uh, really in relationship to what was going on with the ballet ruse. The other thing that was a little bit interesting is that, you know, in the uh, 20s, 30s and 40s and even the 50s into the 60s, uh, Russian dancers were um, considered the only good dancers around. So everybody changed their name uh, or had to change their name. For instance, my teacher in Los Angeles, uh, her name was Patricia Denise, but she danced under the name of um, Alexandra Dunisova. Uh Uh, And, you know, she was from Georgia. She had this Georgian accent, so uh, southern accent. So certainly she wasn't um, uh, sounding Russian. And um, a teacher I had here in New York was uh, Nina and um, Rigmore. She was Danish and she was out to dinner with Leonid Messine, uh, and she was eating beef stroganoff, and he changed her name to Nina Stroganova. So it's stuff like that, which uh, we kind of play with. All of our dancers are given uh, ballerina and male names, such as Ida Never Say Never, or uh, uh, Svetlana Lofat Kina, you know, things like that. So it's a comedy company using dance uh, for um, the performance, well, with a contemporary with a repertoire that dates back to 1974, so you must have quite a wealth of material to choose from to tour each year. 
Yeah, we have a pretty uh, huge repertoire. And so for the 50th anniversary, we really tried to bring back some of the uh, pieces we haven't done in a long time so that uh, the audiences around the country would see uh, a variety of different eras that we came out of. Uh, the important thing for the company is for the show to be really good. And for the show to be really good, in our estimation, uh, it really has to have a variety of a lot of things. And so that's the most important thing. For instance, a variety of dance styles, uh, a variety of costume colors and styles, uh, a variety of music, and a variety of different personalities in every act. Um, because it's a comedy show, it's a drag show, it's a ballet show. Uh, so um, variety is really of the essence. And of course, lovingly mocking classical ballet, but how contemporary does the repertoire get? Well, we have uh, some, um, we have a Merce Cunningham piece, uh, not a faux Merce Cunningham piece, which is very, very contemporary. We also, over the years, have had um, uh, Martha Graham and Paul Taylor style, Pina Bausch, uh, and um, also, if you want to include George Balanchine, which is more neoclassical and not really contemporary, but... um, so we have a, a, a really wide uh, variety of ballets. Interesting enough, most of our successful ballets come from the old classical Russian canon. And uh, so we do a lot of the Russian repertory that isn't seen so much in the United States or in Western Europe. So especially in the, in the UK, where there was this, every year there was this big award, uh, the uh, UK Dance Critics Award, uh, about 10 or 15 years ago, we uh, were awarded the best classical repertory. <laughs> we won the award wow. beating out <laughs> the Royal Ballet, Houston Ballet, um, the Bolshoi Ballet, uh, and English National Ballet. I mean, that was pretty remarkable. <laughs> uh, and we're proud of that, of course. Well, we heard a snippet of one of the troops' signature pieces, speaking of Russians, <laughs> uh, Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake to open. Now, um, I imagine that is a piece that has to be programmed all the time, given the reputation of the of the group. Yeah, we performed uh, Swan Lake Act Two uh, uh, um, a lot, as well as Les Sylphides, which is another ballet. But Swan Lake Act Two is really our signature work, and we also perform the Dying Swan on every program, which is also one of our signature works. <laughs> Terrific! Uh, the residency here at SF uh, at Cal Performances at Zellerbach Hall is uh, the 27th at 8 p.m., 3 p.m. on the 28th. I'm so pleased that we had some time to talk with you today, Tori. I wish you a great tour, continued good health for the rest of the uh, tour, and I'm really looking forward to catching you guys finally. It's terrific. Thank you so much. Tell us a little bit about the excerpt I also have, Paquita. Paquita is an old classic Russian ballet choreographed by uh, Marius Patipa, and it really is the high classical standard that uh, is um, done uh, in Russia and also in uh, lots of countries. And what we do is that we do the original work, but then we exaggerate everything, especially the Russian style, which is already pretty exaggerated. And so um, music is by Minkus, and it's really upbeat and a lot of catchy tunes in it. Imagine, if you will, Le Ballet Trocadero de Monte Carlo dancing to this music. Tori Dobrin, Artistic Director of the group, thank you so much for taking some time today. Thank you.
Ballet, Trocadero de Monte Carlo, performing at Zellerbach Hall next Saturday at 8, Sunday at 3 p.m. Visit calperformances.org for more information. Well, as usual, there's not enough time to get everything in that is going on on the arts, but I encourage you to check out the concerts Thursday and Friday at Davy Symphony Hall. Dalia Stasevska is the guest conductor with Tsiong Jin Cho at the piano with the San Francisco Symphony. Cho will perform Beethoven's third piano concerto with Dvorak's From the New World Symphony, Symphony No. 9, also on the program. A reminder that our shows are archived at KALW.org. If you've got a show suggestion, send me an email. I'm david at KALW.org. Thanks so much for listening.